0: hey listeners it's the final week of august and we hope you've enjoyed our revisiting of our favorite episodes over these past few weeks today we're surfacing two of our more inspiring guests charlie jane anders and azar nafisi both of these episodes helped me get in touch with some things I've been thinking about, but hadn't really realized i had been thinking about, which is another indicator that you've stumbled upon a book you needed to read. Uh, Charlie Jane's Never Say You Can't Survive is a book about how to use creative writing to get through hard times. And, and boy, do we need that book right now? And I, I hope we don't need it so much in the future, but you know, it's probably going to be good to turn to. And Azar and Nafisi's Read Dangerously is also about getting through hard times with a call to action to read books that put, into some context, many of the troubling and challenging situations we're facing on a national and global level right now. And we grouped these two together because both books gave us the same kind of reading experience, which is to say they provoked thinking and offered some kind of solace at the same time. And of course, both authors are so passionate about their subject matters and offered up such important framing around being a creative and being an engaged citizen from a literary perspective, which is a perspective we love, Brooke. And, and you know, we, we know our listeners love it too.
1: Yeah, I love the way you put that, Grant. You know, it helps me to think more clearly about what it means to be an engaged citizen when I can think of it through a literary lens, because Mm -hmm. that is my orientation to the world. And authors are the ones who help me make sense of things, as I know is true for so many of our listeners. Authors help me clarify and crystallize my thinking about the world that we're living in and connecting to what we're living in to an earlier historical context as well, right, which is what Azar does through her book So Extraordinarily. Uh, And I have to credit Charlie Jane, too, with giving me permission to abandon the failed writing project that I attempted about a year ago, because I really did not want to do it. And I was pushing through it out of some sense of obligation or that I should. And it was creatively draining. And it just felt like pushing this boulder uphill in a way that it was uh, just so not sustainable. And so that is an episode that really anyone who's struggling with being a creative right now should go back and listen to. um, And then and also read Charlie Jane's book on the matter uh, you know it's it's about being a creative in these times and the fact that it Encouraged me to let go of it was a positive. I want to say that as well. You know, it gave me an opportunity to turn my creative focus to something that is more uh, life giving and sustaining. And the book was born out of the pandemic. But of course, these deeper issues that we're facing around our creativity and what matters and how to continue to sustain your creative juices, it's equally important in this post pandemic space that we're living in. And I just don't see, you know, this particular energy going anywhere anytime soon.
0: Yeah, especially because I'm not sure if we're (laughs) (laughs) post-pandemic. Good point. (laughs) We we all say that, but I'm not sure where we are. Um, And, you know, in this time, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, I've talked to so many writers and so many, I mean, all of them. All of, all, every writer I've talked to has grappled with this this question of why write when the world seems to be falling apart. And Charlie Jane really makes a powerful case for why we should write. You know, it's, it's, it's in her title because she makes the case that writing is survival. And I think stories form our truth and they in turn, you know, form the fuel of our advocacy, the way we put our voices in the world. So we can't shut down creatively when the world is in turmoil. And Charlie Jane said... Part of how they make you obey is by making obedience seem peaceful while resistance is violence, but really either choice is about violence one way or another. And I think I think another word for violence is just disruption, you know, and creating conversations, creating necessary conversations. And, and Charlie Jane defines resistance as, as writing about other worlds, about, you know, dealing with monsters on the page so you can deal with them in real life.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And Read Dangerously, similarly, is about disruption and how reading itself can be an act of disruption. And that is sitting on my bookshelf uh, because it's actually contributing to my reading cue, as I said it would back then when we had Azar on the show. And there is so much turmoil in the world, as we've been saying. And I know many of us tuned in to, or at least got the highlights from the January 6th hearings uh, earlier this summer. And for me, Azar's book is a treatise on what's at stake in an eroding democracy written by someone who lived through a parallel situation in Iran in the 1980s. And so it's a sobering book, but it's also hopeful and a reminder, an important reminder that being well read is also being well armed, Uh, you know, and understanding what's at stake is a way to be able to engage and have those kinds of conversations with people that you might prefer not to otherwise engage
0: yeah both charlie jane and azar are you know they're they are all about connection in the end um they're fundamentally optimists who see stories and writing as a guiding light through these times and and i know that you know brooke that both of us believe the same which is why we're sharing you know some of our favorite moments from these episodes and if you love what you hear uh go back and listen to the whole show of each of these great writers so here are charlie jane and azar I am super thrilled to introduce Charlie Jane Anders, who is the author of Victories Greater Than Death, the first book in a new young adult trilogy, which came out in April 2021. Her other books include The City in the Middle of the Night and All the Birds in the Sky. Her fiction and journalism have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Slate, McSweeney's, Tor.com, and Tin House, among many others. With Annelie Newitz, she co-hosts the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct, And she just published Never Say You Can't Survive, a book about how to use creative writing to get through hard times, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Charlie Jane.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is so awesome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a treat for us. And I want to start with the genesis of Never Say You Can't Survive because I read on a personal level, you wrote that your father had died of COVID in 2020. And you were dealing with an assortment of family issues. And then you were also struggling with a novel that was past its deadline. And that was on top of all the global crises that we know happened in 2020 and that we're continuing to deal with today. Yet in this moment, you wrote, one thing got me through that hell year, dreaming up imaginary worlds and larger than life people who never lived. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about why fiction mattered and matters to you in such a world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think fiction is really the only thing that matters a lot of the time. It's the only way that we can kind of break free of the kind of uh, oppressive groupthink and, you know, the kind of invisible constraints on our sense of reality that are around us at all times. I think that it's easy especially when things are really terrible and we're all doom scrolling and like everybody on social media is encouraging each other to kind of get feel worse and worse and to like kind of fixate on you know the same set of ideas or the same set of facts. Writing and reading and consuming stories is like the only way that we can connect to our imagination That, you know, is this powerful thing that can kind of lift us out of this one version of reality into, you know, a universe where anything is possible, including making radical change, including surviving, including fighting against oppressive systems. And I think that fiction is essential.
1: Fiction obviously provides hope and helps people to imagine new worlds, but you also discuss how you can use stories to face up to debilitating fears. Um, And you wrote a story called Don't Press Charges and I Won't Sue. And you discuss in detail how that story helped you deal with your fears. So could you share that with our listeners today?
2: Yeah. So that was also back in 2017. It was like January 2017 when, you know, we were about to have a change of, of president. And I was honestly, as a as a transgender woman, I was feeling very, very uh, anxious and scared and kind of panic stricken about uh, this new era and what it would bring. And, you know, I felt like there was a lot of there was a new kind of wave of of transphobic kind of hateful language going on. Uh, From all sides. And it was just it was a really scary time. And so I wrote this story to kind of I basically couldn't do anything else until I wrote this story. That was kind of this like dark dystopian, kind of very surreal, but but disturbing story about a trans woman who is captured by kind of an evil Uh, organization that's kind of associated with the government. And they're trying to use very extreme, very weird kind of horror focused, like very horror movie methods to turn her back into a cis man. And it felt like, you know, this was kind of my way of putting all my fears, all my dread and anxiety into a story. So I could contain it and kind of look at it and show someone surviving this, but also just kind of get inside it and kind of understand it a little bit better. And I think that that is one of the things that you can do in fiction. Fiction allows you to kind of play with perspective and kind of look at things from a distance but also very close up and from different, you know, viewpoints. And you can kind of get a better understanding of it and maybe kind of feel like you have more of a handle on the thing that you're worried about or angry about or just upset about. And it also can obviously provide escapism and joy and and friendship and all these other lovely things as well.
1: Grant and I were talking about the no pain, no gain approach to writing in life before you came on uh, and how maybe sometimes we've been guilty of that ourselves, you know, advising people to grin and bear it when it comes to finishing books. Uh, And so what's your take on this, especially in these times, if a writer should push through, you know, whether it be depression or anger or grief or fatigue in order to write or, you know, you mentioned self-care earlier. So how do you manage
2: yeah, I mean, I used to be very kind of like no pain no gain in my approach to writing. I used to be very much like I'm just going to tough it out. I'm going to like, you know, I used to be a uh, a long-distance runner and like you have this thing when you're running like 10 miles or whatever where you're like, okay, I've got a, a you know, a cramp, I've got a stitch in my side. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to run through the pain. <laughs> right. And you know, I can't comment on whether that works for for running. I think it probably does until it doesn't, until you actually get an injury that you that you can't tough out. But I think that with writing, it's this, you know, such a personal, vulnerable, creative thing to be doing that I think that that can be really counterproductive. It can actually lead to more paralysis. I do, I mean, I love that NaNoWriMo is so empowering. And so, you know, I feel like the overall feeling that I get from NaNoWriMo is one of, you know, just encouragement and friendliness and just like everybody kind of cheering each other on, which is part of what I love about the organization and about the, the that month. It's always like a really happy time for me to be around people who are doing that. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you treat it as this thing where you have to kind of tough it out, it's not going to be good for you or your writing. It might result in writing that you're not super happy with later, which obviously you can revise, but sometimes, you know, it just, you can't find the story you're trying to tell. And I think that sometimes you just have to be gentle with yourself and kind of give yourself a little bit of a break. But also, you know, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling upset, you know, honor those feelings, find a way to kind of use that of those emotions in your work if you can, but also treat them as diagnostic instruments. Like sometimes you get stuck and you're like, oh, I feel like garbage and I just can't work on this thing. And like, it's just making me upset or unhappy to work on this thing. And I just feel, you know, like maybe I'm doing it wrong. Those things can be diagnostic. Those things can tell you that maybe there's something about your story that you need to take a step back and think about, because maybe deep down, you know, that you don't entirely believe in what you're writing or, you know, there's something about it that is just not clicking for you and maybe taking a a beat and just kind of stepping back and thinking about it or putting it aside for a little while and working on something else might allow you to see it more clearly. I think that, you know, people, this isn't running. It's something that involves your your guts and your brain and your heart and, you know, all of your most vulnerable parts. I I know I keep using the word vulnerable, but I, I really do think that that's important to recognize. I think that, you know, people need to take their own feelings seriously.
1: We're so pleased to have with us Azar Nafisi, who is an Iranian writer and professor of English literature. She won a fellowship from Oxford and taught English literature at the University of Tehran, the Free Islamic University, and Alameh University in Iran. She is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestselling Reading Lolita in Tehran, which is one of my all-time favorites, The Republic of Imagination, and she is joining us today to talk about a lot of things, among them her newest book, Read Dangerously. Welcome, Azar. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled. And this new book that you've written is a series of letters to your father. Uh, and you write about how it began to take shape in your intro that you sort of realized you were formulating a book over time as you were writing letters to your father who passed away in 2004. And so I'd love for you to share with us about what it's like to write a book like this that's so intimate and also so universal. And I also wanted to ask you about whether James Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates, both of who you write about, but also they both wrote books that are in letter form, um, and whether either of them were inspirations.
3: Definitely. James Baldwin has been one of my inspirations for a long time now. Uh, I ended Republic of Imagination with Baldwin, uh, the epilogue was Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt that there were so many conversations that I ne- still needed to have with him. So he sort of became an inspiration for this book. From the very start, I knew I wanted to have Baldwin uh, in my new book. And uh, as you say, uh, the reasons that this book was shaped through my um, sense of desperation. You talk about it being intimate. Well, it went very deep. Mm. Um, You know, when you're a migrant, when you're an immigrant, um, one of the things that happens to you is that you become sensitized to things that are happening in your new home. You don't want the reasons you left in your old home now happen uh, in your new place. And for a long time, as um, early as uh, when I was writing uh, Republic of Imagination, I was worried at the direction this country was going. Every time uh, you want to know whether um, uh, a mindset is uh, totalitarian, you remember that they attack, their first targets become women, women, minorities and culture. That happened in the Islamic Republic of Iran. The first laws they uh, annulled were the laws that were supporting women. And that is what is happening in this country today. I'm not saying that America is the the Islamic Republic of Iran, we have still free speech. You and I are talking about anything that we want to, and um, we can write about anything that we want to, but there are many, many restrictions that remind me of a totalitarian mindset, and that was one reason I wanted to write this book
0: that 's so interesting, especially you know your take and your sensitivity to that totalitarian Movement in a country, and reading Lolita in Tehran was one of those uh, well it was a mega best selling book but it but it was kind of beyond that because it really has such power to change a person's life and i'm curious how, how did the success of that book impact how you think about a literature's potential or possibility to influence and to affect change and, and even to save lives in a in a climate like we 're living in now
3: well, you know. I really, really did not think that reading Lolita will sell more than one or 2,000 copies. I I mean, I would tell my uh, editor that this book is not going to sell. My friends were telling me, uh, you're writing about Iran and we're in a war with Iraq. Uh, You're writing about these writers who are all dead and done with, you know. And uh, I wrote it because I had to. That is the whole idea behind writing. It's like falling in love. You just have to. And um, reading Lolita taught me what amazing connections books make for you. I felt frustrated because I could not, uh, because of the way uh, Iran was uh, mirrored in the media over here and, and the way the politicians talked about it. It was as if the whole of Iran with its ancient uh, history and uh, its rich culture uh, was condensed into the Islamic Republic's view of Islam and of Iran. And I wanted people to know that there was another way of looking at Iran. And there were people living there and resisting uh, the Islamic Republic um, through preserving their individuality and their identity. And um, so the fact that Reading Dolita connected to so many different uh, strata of readers uh, uh, was very, very encouraging. Uh, I couldn't believe it. And by the way, I express my concern about this country in the last chapter of reading Dolita in Tehran, where, quoting Saul Bellow, I talk about those who survived the ordeal of Holocaust, how will they survive the ordeal of freedom? Because I, have, I felt that we are forgetting that freedom is an ordeal and it needs to be guarded and preserved and it needs to be nourished and nurtured every single day of our lives.
0: I heard you say in another interview that you made a home in England and later in the United States through literature, through the authors that you read, Yeah. and that these books and these authors became your family and your portable home. And I think that's such an interesting way to, to find it, make a home and understand a culture in the way that you've spoken about it. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about that.
3: Yes. You know, um, one of the things that makes me feel, as some people say, blessed uh, is the fact that I had traveled uh, to all these countries um, that I later traveled to, not physically, but in my imagination through reading the stories. I mean, uh, since I was um, uh, about three and a half years old, every night my father would tell me a story, and he was very democratic in the way he told his stories. One night we would visit our epic poet, Ferdowsi, who lived a 1,000 years ago. The next night we would fly to France with the little prince, to England with Alice, to Denmark with Little Match Girl, to United States with Charlotte's Web, um, to Italy with Pinocchio. And, and so I felt that very early in life, uh, at the age of 13, when my parents sent me to England to be educated, I realized that everything you call home, your material, physical home, can be taken away from you at the drop of an eyelid. First, it was uh, me being sent to England uh, to live on my own and uh, to be away from everything that I loved. And then later on, when I returned to the country that I loved so much, uh, uh, I felt like an alien because uh, of the totalitarian regime that had come to power. And so I knew that uh, I cannot rely on reality that uh, it can take away everything I have, if not through a war and a revolution, through a natural disaster, for example. And so when I went to England, I took with me the best that Iran had to offer. It's poetry. I took with me three books of poetry, uh, Rumi, Hafez, are classical poets, and the feminist uh, uh, poet, Farooq Farrokhzad. And I mentioned that I made myself at home through Jane Austen and Auden and um, Ralph Ellison and uh, Melville and Twain and um, later Baldwin. Now, in this portable world that I have, I feel at home. It is the only home that cannot be taken away from me, that I will always have, no matter where I live.
1: Oh my gosh, I just love how you rattle off all of those authors, Azhar. I mean, you're, you're so well-read yourself, and Read Dangerously is really about asking questions and questioning. It's a celebration of curiosity. And it's a warning. I mean, we're talking about the dangers uh, and the lessons that we can learn from history and some of that history certainly you've lived through. So when you think about what impact this most recent book might have, what's your greatest hope or your greatest aspiration?
3: I hope that we will think more. I mean, we can't think of, just think about these things. We need to have feelings about them as well. But I hope that we will have... Uh, a national debate around and and, and reawaken the curiosity that we have lost. You know, literature is all about others. We write in order to connect to others and we read again in order to connect. And uh, being curious takes you out of yourself, out of your skin, and puts you under the skin of others. Now, one of the most dangerous um, enemies of uh, totalitarianism is fiction, because you notice that fiction by structure is democratic. A great writer has to give voice to every single character. It is a democracy of voices. Even the villain gets to have a voice. A bad writer is like a dictator. He only imposes his voice upon all others. And rather than allowing us to experience and through our experiences come to a judgment, it has already made its judgments for us. It is full of messages And um, the only voice we hear is the voice of the writer, not the voice of the characters. Uh, So uh, writing and reading becomes dangerous to a totalitarian mindset for that reason that they are democratic by nature and for the fact that literature and art always, always reveal the truth. They are witnesses to history. And they write as witnesses, Baldwin, Atwood, Grossman, all call themselves as writers, as witnesses. And uh, truth is dangerous because once you know it, you have to do something about it. You can't remain silent. And truth is dangerous because All totalitarian mindsets, whether they live uh, in Trump's or whether they are um, in the Islamic Republic, all totalitarian mindsets rely on lies. Look at Putin. Lies becomes the foundation upon which totalitarians build their building.
0: We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
1: This week's trend is a good one for parents and kids, which is that reading apps are exploding. Uh, and our favorite trend watcher, Jane Friedman, recently shared that Webtoon, Tapas, Radish, and other online reading apps have seen dramatic growth during and since the pandemic. And So Grant, what do you know about these apps?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I've I only experienced them in, in limited fashion as an actual kind of user. Uh, Tapas, uh, I'm especially familiar with because they're a former uh, NaNoWriMo sponsor and a really lovely platform they're mainly for graphic novels but they've also moved into novels as well so it's a really fun way to to write and share your novels from what i know these apps are really driving a lot of discoverability so they're really important for young readers and beyond young readers i think so brooke i'm curious does james use these apps
1: not yet. I am going to check them out and see if he would, <laughs> because that's the operative word. Uh, you know. But anything that encourages more reading is a good thing. But kids are just like so up in their screens. Um, and so if they're already going to be there, they might as well have some of these reading apps at the ready. But when it comes to reading at this point for him, it's physical books. And then if he's online, it's audiobooks.
0: Yeah. And, and another thing, you know, that Jane mentioned was serialization. And this was actually my entry point with a lot of reading apps, uh, especially for NaNoWriMo writers who many of them do serialize their stories and their novels you know, we're entering a whole new area of serialization, which I, I find super exciting. And serialization is, is, is especially popular with the genre fiction authors, you know, because those authors earn extra money from serializations and adaptations, um, especially because these, these platforms, you know, like pay them as well. Jane also noticed that Royal Road is a reading app that digital first publishers see as, you know, rich territory for mining talent. And, and this used to be the case, uh, with Wattpad. And so in addition to drawing readers, uh, like Wattpad before at this This whole growing trend gives authors new opportunities for growth as well.
1: Yeah. And I love this trend because of that, because it's a way for up-and-coming writers to get in front of their audiences and to publish their work and let the readership dictate who's popular and who's not. And I think that's a win-win for everybody because it is more democratic. It's a process where the readers are raising the flag on the writers that they like, and then those writers are rewarded in the form of readers, and then sometimes in the form of the support of publishers.
0: Yeah. So back to the I'm just going to loop back to the reading app part of this conversation and uh, curious if you see any downsides to the popularity of these apps.
1: I mean, the old school part of me wishes that kids would curl up with a paperback book and spend hours in the library. And some kids, of course, do that. Uh, But our entire world has shifted so dramatically to be online. And I also think it's super unrealistic to expect that kids should rally around print books only. And so I definitely think the apps make the reading experiences for kids more fun. And that really matters. And online, kids can access all kinds of books. So that's also great. And as a parent, I just care about kids uh, and I care about adults also, <laughs> you know, reading and getting uh, their hands on stuff they love. And since I read print ebooks and I listen to audiobooks, I'm, you know, way more format agnostic than I used to be.
0: I like that term, format agnostic. <laughs> um, me too. I, I think we all kind of capitulated to the omnipresence of, you know, online everything in a, in a whole new way since the, the pandemic. Um, I do want to note, though, that kids really love print books. My, my kids definitely preferred them and prefer them. And I think uh, print sales uh, continue to, to, to kind of go up and be the number one way that people like to read. So we just have dual worlds going on.
1: Yeah. And I think that's great. You know, don't resist whichever way your kids want to read, I guess, is the point of this. Reading Mm -hmm. rejuvenates us as uh, as adults and and reinvigorates our kids. So I just want to hitch my energy to all that good vibes that reading has to offer. And so maybe check out a reading app and also go check out a book at your local library.
0: Well, listeners, we made it to the end of August. And Brooke, that means we'll be back next week with some brand new episodes.
1: Yes, I am truly looking forward to connecting with some new guests. And we have Stephanie Fu, author of the memoir, What My Bones Know, kicking us off for the first week of September. And her book touched a nerve with me, which I will share more about when we get to that episode. So I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, can't wait to hear more about that. And we've got plenty of other great authors in the queue and the mix. So happy last week of August, everyone. And we'll see you next week.